Well, last week I told you at the end of the summer, we will be placing uh, two new elders before the church to, to vote on, and those men are Rich Brown and Don Bowman, and um, both of those guys have been sitting in our current staff pastors and elders meetings for, for some time now, and um, using that as, a, as an on-ramp, and they've been in training for the past year and a half, specific training. They've been training for the task a lot longer than that because they are, they are well-known by, by you, this congregation, and have served in, in many, way, many ways. And uh, Larry and Jeff and myself would surely affirm them to you, the three current elders, or we wouldn't be placing them before you. But, but what I want to do over as we consider this over the summer and you prepare to vote on them sometime in, uh, in August, I want to remind you of some things from Scripture. These are surely the type of men that we would desire to place before you, not only the end of this summer, but, but in the future, men that are tested and, and mature, men that clearly love Christ and, and have proven their love for this church. But the Bible has its own set of qualifications that, that an elder must meet. And I am going to remind you of, of what those are. So you can have them in, in mind as you, you consider these men over the, over the summer. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we, we saw last Sunday night, tells us that God has designed a specific structure for his church. In fact, Jesus promised to build the church, and part of that promise was that he gave a structure to it that would endure and that would grow. He's given gifts to his church, evangelists and pastors and teachers. He, he gave apostles and prophets to lay the foundation of the church, and that's what happened in the book of Acts. And after the book of Acts, the foundation was laid, and so there's no more apostles and prophets, and those who build on that foundation are missionary evangelists and pastors and teachers, also called elders in the, in the Bible. And, and Christ then mediates His rule through, through those men that He's given to oversee His flock. As we saw last Sunday night, elders in particular don't have any authority due to their position or, or in their person. It's a delegated authority. To the extent that I speak to you the Word of God and and we conduct the, the affairs of the church on the basis of the, the Word of God, there's authority in, in the Bible, but not in, in, in men. Jesus loves His church. He only gave His life for it, but He gives faithful shepherds to it to pour out their lives for, for her continued care. And while the Bible uses analogies for the church, like a, like a building, a temple... A tree bears fruit. The most common one is a, is a body. Jesus is the head of the church. And the local assembly of believers is the, is the body of Christ, and the Spirit joins those two to, together. The late Adrian Rogers said, You can't love Jesus and not the church because they are so connected they're one and the same. Saying, I love Jesus but not the church is like saying that you love a severed head. And that would be pretty sick. Um, I say try telling your wife, honey, I love your head. It's your body I have a problem with and see what happens. That probably wouldn't go over too well, would it? Well, you should probably think of the same way whenever you hear somebody say, oh, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. And when Scripture says Jesus is the head, it means He possesses authority over His church. Just like the physical body has a, has a control center, and the control center, it's, it's brain, it's mission control, it, it determines what the, what the physical body does. And Christ is the same in His church. As a church, we, re, we react to divine synapses from the head. We respond to His holy thoughts and reply to heavenly direction. And He sets the agenda and gives, gives us our parameters as it relates to what we believe and, and what we do. And that includes the church's structure, and that's clearly laid out in... In Scripture. And if you break down the structure from the New Testament, we said you find three major features to the church's uh, anatomy. These are all part of the church. There's not clergy and laity or elders and deacons and then the body. 
it's all the body, but, but as part of the body, there, there's, a, there's a structure. There's the visible leaders, sometimes called elders and pastors and overseers. There are the exemplary servers, better known as deacons. They're models for the church. So good at serving that they model that for the rest of the congregation. And then there are the maturing ministers, and that is the, the body it's, itself. And Christ uses those parts to, to govern His church. I summarize that with the, the statement, the church is elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally affirmed. And tonight we're going to see what elders look like. We're putting these two men before you. You know them. You may like them. You may even have some affinity. Maybe they've been used by God in your life, but that doesn't mean that they're qualified to be elders. So what would you lay them up against in Scripture to say, oh, yeah, I think Rich Brown would make a, a, good, a good elder. How do you recognize the leaders that Jesus gives to his church? And how can you also identify the false ones that serve their own interests instead of, of Christ? Jesus calls them. He equips them, he prepares them, and then he gives them to his church. That's the whole Ephesians 4 that Clay laid out for us. So Matt could get some more children's ministry workers. Isn't that what you all said? I think Jeff said this morning. R.W. DeHaan of a radio Bible class once humorously described the fickle mindset that is typically used whenever you think of an elder or, or a pastor. If you don't use the Bible... To, to identify elders, then you may have a hodgepodge of, of any number of qualifications. He said if a pastor is too young, an elder is too young, he lacks experience. If his hair is too gray, he's too old for the young people. If he has five or six children, he has too many. If he has none, he's setting a bad example. If he preaches from notes, he has canned sermons and is dry. If his messages are extemporaneous, he isn't deep enough. If he drives an old car, he shames the congregation. If he buys a new one, he's setting his affection on earthly things. If he receives a large salary, he's a mercenary. If he gets a small one, people say it proves that he wasn't worth much anyway. Well, the good news is that the Bible tells us how to recognize a biblical elder whenever we, we see one. And so I want you to open to Titus chapter 1, and you'll see a portrait unfold. Some of this will be redundant if you have been in college ministry because I think Rich has even been going over some of these things. But between Titus and 1 Timothy, you find seven definitive descriptions of the visible leaders in the church, or you could just say the elders. Seven definitive descriptions of an elder. And these are not optional accessories. Well... If one of these guys has, you know, six of the seven, then that's okay. No, they, they must have all seven. They're necessary requirements that God gives for those who will lead His, his church. As I said, some of them are from Titus. They overlap with, with Timothy. Number one, he's required to be a man, according to both Timothy and Titus. Number two, he must have an unchargeable testimony. Number three, he must have time and training. Number four, he's required to be faithful at home. Number five, he must have a specific character. And number six, he must pursue the ability. And number seven, he must have a particular commitment. We're not going to get through all of those tonight. In fact, we're only going to get to the first one. But how do you know an elder in the church? Is it a tie? Caller, no, they'll meet these specific qualifications without exception, and it's imperative that they do. Look at Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. I referenced this text last Sunday night. It's the Apostle Paul writing to Titus. He sends him to Crete. I've been to Crete. And he says, For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So Titus doesn't have his own agenda. He is God's agenda that the Apostle Paul gives him. And he's to do a specific task. He tells Titus that the primary reason he sent him to Crete was to set in order the, the church. The, the word means to make straight. 
epideorthao, which is where we get our word for orthodontist. Um, it's a dental specialist who aligns or straightens crooked teeth. And so Paul tells Titus that he must properly align the church. He needs to put God's braces on the, on the church. And I want you to notice that in order to do that, he, he says, put them in these three places, or this is what will put the church in order. He says, the church is out of order or misaligned without elders. I, I want you to set something in order. It, if it needs to be set in order, it means it's out of order. And it also says Titus is to appoint them. Meaning, find faithful men, prepare them, and set them before the congregation as recognized leaders. And I want you to also notice that he is to appoint more than one. It's elders, plural, appoint elders in every city, as I direct you. But he's not to just appoint anyone. God gives specific requirements to identify them. And the very first one that he gives is he's required to be a man. Look, if you would, at verse 6. All right, here's your task, Titus, whenever you go there. I want you to set some men before this congregation. And verse 6 says, namely, if any man. If your ESV says any one, that's appropriate because it is a pronoun, but it's a nominative, a nominative singular masculine pronoun. If any man, a New American Standard gets it, gets it right. Namely, if any man is above reproach. The idea that an elder must be a man is, is not something that's been controversial at all in the church, probably until the last 50 years or, or so. It's something that's obviously in the forefront of, of the evangelical world. The Southern Baptists are arguing over that right now. If you've paid attention to any news, we're not Southern Baptists, but even more recently... Um, Beth Moore left the Southern Baptist Convention um, after Lifeway created her and propped her up. She's a very gifted speaker, and I'm sure she, she loves Jesus, but, but they gave her that massive ministry, and that thing grew, and, and now she has, she has split away. And, and same thing with Russell Moore and others, and the SBC just voted on a on a new president, and who knows what's going to happen with the, the Southern Baptist Convention. But this is one of the issues, one of the discussion points even last week in, in their convention was that Saddleback Church, Rick Warren's church, Rick Warren is stepping down, I think after 40 years, they're looking for a new pastor, and they just ordained women elders there for the, for the first time, something that's contrary to, to the Baptist faith and and message. And so while this is something that's, that's controversial in the evangelical world right now, it's not controversial at all in the Bible. Not only is a church incomplete and out of order without elders, but, but I think an even more tragic situation is when a church places leaders that are unqualified biblically in a position of leadership. And there are two primary viewpoints on whether elders are required to be, to be a man. Um, the, the first is, uh, is something that has been around uh, recently, like I say, within the past uh, 50 years, egalitarian or what's called evangelical feminist view, which says men and women are equal, and that requires there is no distinction between them at all. There's no difference in God-ordained roles in the home or, or church based on gender. Therefore, a woman can preach, be a pastor, lead her husband or her family or, or anything else that she aspires. And the, the feminism position, would egalitarian position, would say the fall is the reason that we even have authority and submission, also called patriarchy. You'll see that name thrown around. Or male domination. And that Jesus came to remove all of that with the cross. And so basically, if you want to summarize that position, it was due to the fall that you even have any differences between men and women. So the distinction of roles in the home and in life and in the church is a product of the curse. That's what they would say. The key verse that they would use is Galatians 3.28 
which says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's about the only uh, Bible verse that, that they have, because frankly there's not a lot of biblical support for, for the position, but, but they, don't really, they don't really claim it, they don't really use it. Um, they... They talk more from cultural standpoint. You reinterpret the intent of Scripture based upon cultural norms. They would say that a grammatical, historical, contextual hermeneutic or taking Scripture at face value is too simplistic. And what is written in the Bible is, was written by men like the Apostle Paul. And those men were chauvinistic. So that's where the interpretation that they, came, uh, that they gave comes from. And that's... So I said, that's a recent position in the church. The second and the biblical position is what's also called a complementarian position or that men and women complete each other. And if you look at the Bible, Scripture teaches that men and women are completely equal and God sees them that way. He does not consider men and women as one lesser or one greater but he's designed them for himself, distinct and different, to complement one another and accomplish his purpose and bring him glory. And Scripture says there was a change that took place at the fall, that happened at the fall, but it wasn't the adding of authority or distinctions or roles. It was actually the perverting of them. That's what even led to the fall. And after sin entered the world, men have been tempted to misuse their leadership, surely, and women have also been tempted to rise up against them and, and refuse to follow. God has given both men and women the ability through Christ to humbly complement one another. It, in His design, He has ordained that men bear His image as leaders. Both men and women bear the image of God, but they do that in distinct ways. And because God has ordained that men do that, He's reserved the role of an elder for men. There are too many biblical texts to, to note for this position. We'll go over some of them tonight. But it's a position that the church has held for centuries because it, quite frankly, is the biblical position. Now, as you listen to that, if these were just two uh, philosophies or theories, you, you, could, you, know, you could debate them and pick which whatever sounds best, and you could be pragmatic and say, hey, this one works better in this culture, or that one works better over there. I mean, there are certain places where there's more women in the church than men. I mean, if they were just philosophies or theories, you, you could do that, but that's not possible. Because the Bible is not a book of suggestions to apply to culture. It's an authoritative instruction for God's people. And it's, it's transcendent. It's fixed. We heard it this morning about the faith that's once delivered to the saints. And if your position on this is based on Scripture, the conclusion couldn't be clearer. In fact... You try to draw any other conclusion other than, than that position that I just gave you, you'll, you'll disregard more Scripture than can be counted. In fact, I mean, even the one verse, Galatians 3, 28 and 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Even this proof text for egalitarianism is clearly talking about salvation. That's the context of it. You are you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. It just simply means that we all come by faith and we're all heirs of the same promise to Christ. Whether you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, you all come the same way and you all have the same spiritual access to God. It's by faith through, through the Lord Jesus. This passage has absolutely nothing to do with, with authority or roles that's clearly taught throughout the New Testament. In fact, Colossians chapter 3, the parallel passage to Galatians, is, teaches the, the different functions of men and women, as does Romans and Ephesians, and 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus and 1 Peter and Jesus himself. In fact, Jesus on marriage in 1 Timothy and 2 Corinthians 11 even refers back to prior to the fall, the order of creation as, as authority for design and, and the evidence for these positions. 
The Bible clearly teaches men are distinct from women, and it clearly teaches an elder must be a, a man. And, and the Bible does this. It's very consistent whenever you, you, you look all the way through it. An elder is required to be a man, and, and, and you can see that in Scripture, in, in the Bible's portrayal of an elder, in the Bible's prohibition against, uh, against eldering, who, who can not be an elder. It's very clearly spelled out in 1 Timothy 2. And then also its practices. In every place the Bible speaks of the requirements of an elder, he is always described as a man. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 3, these two parallel passages, Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, you can see these lists that they, they overlap. 1 Timothy 3 verse 1 is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, you remember overseer and shepherd and elder, pastor, they're interchangeable. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. And then he gets into the qualifications. An overseer then must be above reproach the husband of, of one wife. Look at verse 4 if you, you would. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Look at verse 5. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the, the church of God? Verse 6 uses the pronoun he, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And in verse 7, he must have a good reputation. And if you go back to Titus chapter 1, verse 6, if any man is above reproach, husband of one wife, it repeats the same, the same qualifications. Nowhere is there any place where anyone other than a man can meet the description given for the office of an elder, regardless of the gifting of a person or how well they speak or or how intelligent they are, how much theology that, that they know. That's irrelevant. I mean, there are plenty of women that know way more theology than I do. And there are some that are way better preachers or speakers than proclaimers of information than, than, than I would be. But that has nothing to do with whether they're qualified for the office of an elder. Philippians 1.1 gives the first reference to the office. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus gives us the requirements. And, and these are not suggestions, they're, they're necessities. And not only is it exclusively taught that in the description that Scripture gives, portrayal of, of an elder, but there's also a prohibition. You say, well, you know, maybe, maybe this was at a time when there were only men. So Paul was was writing 1 Timothy when there were only men, so he only describes it in, in male terms. And, and so if Paul had a woman elder in the church, then maybe he would have been more gender inclusive. Well, this prohibition jettisons that argument. But look, if you would, at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Back up one chapter in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Remember, 1 Timothy was written because Paul was going to be delayed to come to Timothy. And he says, Timothy, God has ordered his church, and in case I delay, I want it to be governed according in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, and so here's what you need to be doing. And he gives, he gives specific commands to the men. I want men to pray with holy hands, and, and then he transitions to the, to the women in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse 8. Therefore I want men, that's males in, in the original. I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And then he turns to the women. Likewise, I want women, females, to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments. When you come to church, you don't attract attention to yourself because it's all about Christ. I know it's a verse about modesty, but, but it's way more than that. It's flaunting of wealth. and You don't want to show up at church, ladies, and just scream, look at me, look at me, because when you come to church, your eyes want to be on Christ. But here's the prohibition. But rather by the means of good works, and 
is proper for women making a claim to godliness. If you want to be noticed in church, be noticed by your godliness. In the prohibition in verse 11. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. That is a verse that, man, I've heard preached so many times, and unfortunately, a lot of times wrongly. And it seems offensive whenever you first hear it, but it's not at all. In fact, verse 12 explains exactly what Paul means here. What does Paul mean when it says a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness? Does that mean that when you ladies come to church, you don't open your mouths, you just sit there and you do nothing? Of course it doesn't. We say that because we are faithful to Scripture and you sing and you pray and you do other things in the church. Well, what does Paul mean by that? Well, he qualifies exactly what he means by that in verse 12. Here's what I mean by quietly receiving instruction. They're not to teach or exercise authority over a man. So quietly receiving instruction means that they're they're not to be in an official teaching role. And with entire submissiveness means that they're not to exercise authority over over a man. A woman must quietly receive instruction, not teach, with entire submissiveness. They're not to rule in in the church. Verse 12 qualifies verse 11. It just simply means a woman is not to be in the official teaching position in the church. They're not to be an elder, a pastor, or any other position that exercises authority over over men. It has nothing to do with whether they can speak in the church or teach or do any other things. You have to do textual gymnastics that look like a contortionist to get around the, just the clarity of this text. I mean, the common argument is that this means, that, of the egalitarians, is this means that, well, that women can't be abusive in their authority. It doesn't say that. The other argument, as I told you, is that Paul is a, is a male chauvinist and the culture wouldn't accept women pastors, so now that the culture can, it, it's okay. So, so whenever the culture changes, do we, we change on marriage and do we change on sexuality? Oh, oh, wait, that's exactly what they're doing, isn't it? You see, when you give up that the text of Scripture is the authority and not just the Bible, everybody says the Bible there is their authority, Joel Osteen holds up the Bible every time and says something about it. Hermeneutics, like there's, there, there's actual language and grammar and context on, on this page. There's objective truth here, propositional truth. Then you can know specifically what, what it says. That is, is where the authority is at. It, it's embedded there. And if you give up that anywhere, then, then you're you're out in left field and there's no way to get back because then, then at what point do you apply the cultural interpretation here and not the, the actual context of, of Scripture or what, or what the text says? Once you give up that, the Bible, that the Bible alone is your authority and that it has grammar and context and rules to interpret it, then, then you make it say whatever you want to make it say. Whether that is Jesus wants you to be rich or love is all that matters regardless of, of gender. I can remember the first time I was challenged on, on, on this. Um, I actually had a lady in a, in a church that I was in and she was teaching an adult Sunday school class with, with men there. Quite frankly because the men were lazy and none of them would, would study. And so somehow she became the adult Sunday school teacher. Um, and that went on while I was there for, for, for quite some time because you never know whether somebody's doing something out of ignorance or out of rebellion, and, and you really need to discern that, you know. Um, have they not been taught? Have they been taught wrong? And, and you may be wrong on some things yourself, so you have to be very gracious and and, and yet, everybody has to come back to, to Scripture you know, itself. So you have to discern, is this because it's thrust upon her, she really doesn't want to do this, she doesn't understand, or is this rebellion? And so we finally were sitting down about it, and, and we talked about this passage. We went to this specific passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and um, I'd asked her to read it, and we were going to talk about it. 
And she did and said, you know, she, she didn't want to step aside. She enjoyed what, what she was doing. And I never forget this moment. We were sitting in a Sunday school classroom and both had our Bibles open. And um, she finally got to the place of just kept asking questions. Well, well what does 1 Timothy chapter 2 mean? What does this passage mean here? And, and she finally just got frustrated and she says, I see that's what it says, but that's not what I believe. Can you give me another reason? And I just said, well, that's all I got. I, I, mean, I mean, that was the nuclear option. I don't have anything other than, other than Scripture. And it ended well. I mean, there wasn't anything ugly. She wasn't the Sunday school teacher after that, and she ended up leaving the, the church, and um, her husband followed her, and we got another Sunday school teacher, but... Um, I mean, we still speak today if we see each other. But if you're claiming to be a Christian and, and you want more than God's voice, I don't have anything for you. I mean, that's, that's the trump card. You and I have no authority but the Bible. So why does God restrict eldership to, to men? I mean, why is this so important? We have to be careful with the why question. Because in one sense, it puts you on the, you can put yourself on the same level as God. Like you have the right to ask God to give you an account for why. I have to understand why you have structured or ordained, you know, things this way. When Scripture clearly says that you and I are, are peas and the Lord is, is massive. So first you have to say because God chooses to and he's wiser than us and that should be enough that authority should be enough for Christians. But Paul actually goes on to explain in 1 Timothy 2 that it's because of the created order. Look, if you would, at verse 13. All these verses go together. Verse 11 is the prohibition qualified by what he means in verse 12, but not to hold an official teaching position or be in, a, in official authority in the church over men. And he explains why, verse 13, 1 Timothy 2. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And he goes on and talks about the, the deception whenever they got out of order, but verse 13 is, is what he leads with. It's, notice it's pre-fall. This God designed an order to creation as the creator, and he prohibits his creation from violating it in leading the church. And then the Bible is consistent with that practice through, throughout. So there's the portrayal, clearly, portrayal of a male elder, and then there's the prohibition, and then that's the way that it's practiced all through, all through Scripture. Throughout the Old and New Testament, God has upheld this pattern of creation, pre-fall, and He surely doesn't contradict it now in, in His church and you can, you can see that, that pattern in the, in the garden. You can turn here or you can just listen. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. You can see this pattern in the garden. You remember Eve was created for Adam and Eve was created from Adam and Adam even named Eve. And the only reason that that would be even remotely offensive to anybody is because you're, you're preloaded with with some type of cultural idea that, that that means something, whenever it doesn't mean what the culture says at all in God's eyes. Listen to Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And verse 22, And the Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And verse 23, And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of, out of man. Not only that, Adam was the first one that God held accountable after the fall, the order before the fall. Listen to Genesis 3, 9. 
Then the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? Or as you probably remember in the King James, Adam, where art thou? Words that you do not want to hear (laughs) as a man. And Adam was cursed for his sin and not functioning according to God's order. Listen to verse 17. Listen to the curse that God placed on, on Adam and all men. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, because you have placed yourself under the voice of your wife. You remember in the New Testament the word hupotasso, hupotasso, to hupo to uh, under, to arrange, tasso, to arrange yourself under the, the leadership of your, your husband. Not the same as obeying children, hupa akuo, arrange yourself under the voice of your parents. Children are to listen to the voice of their parents and do it. A wife is not commanded that. She is to voluntarily arrange herself under the leadership of her husband. But notice what Adam does here. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you've arranged yourself under the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree, which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And look at verse 20. Adam even renames the woman Eve to recognize the promise that God made that a seed would come and would save them from the curse. Verse 20, Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. You can see it in practice the pattern in the garden. You can also see it in, uh, in Israel as well. God did not appoint any female kings or queens. Athaliah, the, the wife of Jehoram in 2 Kings 8, was a usurper, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. God also did not appoint any female prophets with any ongoing ministry in the Old Testament. And you, you say, wait, what about Miriam and Deborah? I mean, I've I've heard a lot about Deborah. Well, there are actually five prophetesses in the Old Testament. Deborah was surely one of them in Judges 4.4. Huldah in 2 Kings 22.14. Miriam, Moses' relative. Isaiah's wife, Isaiah 8.3, and she was unnamed. And then Noadiah in Nehemiah 6.14, a false prophetess. So Isaiah's wife may mean that she was the wife of a prophet... Not a prophet or prophetess herself, but just for argument's sake, we'll, we'll say that she had a prophetic gift like Deborah did. And that means that you have four women in the entire Old Testament. And of them, Miriam and Huldah and Deborah had only one recorded prophecy each. And Isaiah's wife had, had none. Noadiah was a false prophetess that stood against God's man, Nehemiah, so you surely wouldn't want to include her. And God surely used these women. There's no doubt about that. There's nothing to do with using them. But none of them had prophetic ministries like Elijah or Elisha or Isaiah or Jeremiah who were ongoing prophets of God. Deborah was a judge and a ruler, but but her judging actually happened because the men of Israel failed to lead. So she's hardly a pattern or a rule when she was raised up to shame the men. God didn't appoint a female priest in the Old Testament either. There's no female high priest. There's no female Levitical order. There are no kings. There are no prophets. There are no priests. And you can see that Jesus carries that over even into into His ministry. I mean, Jesus lifted women. He he did things that that was countercultural because it was biblical to do so, just like it's countercultural to say that men are elders today, but it's biblical to say that. Jesus just does just the opposite. He healed women, he taught them, he exalted them, he treated them as spiritual equals. We even saw where women are the first to witness the resurrection and they're, they're painted in an extremely favorable light at the crucifixion. When the men are watching at a distance and all the male disciples ran off, it's, it's only the brave women that are there with, with Christ. But all of the twelve disciples that Jesus called and commissioned as His apostles to lay the foundation of His church were all men. 
And even when the disciples replaced Judas as one of the twelve, two men were selected, and it says the Lord's lot fell on Matthias. Now think about that. The Lord's lot fell on Matthias. If this was a cultural thing and these men were just patriarchal men and male chauvinists, that would have been a perfect opportunity for God to correct that. I mean, Judas is gone, and now you, you, you have to replace one. But it says the Lord's lot fell on Matthias. Listen to what they prayed in Acts one twenty four, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all men. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside and to go on in his own place. So even there, the Lord chose a man. You can also see it in the structure of the church after the foundation of the apostles and prophets are laid in the book of Acts, from the Gospels to Acts. And you start looking in the epistles. There are no women apostles. There are no women pastor teachers recorded in the New Testament. There, there were no women writers of Scripture. I mean, Priscilla clearly helped her husband instruct Apollos, which is totally fine. Theta Lewis, the lady that led me to the Lord, was my Sunday school teacher. And I learned more from that woman than probably about any man in the church in my early, early days. But Priscilla was not an official teacher in the church, or she didn't have a pulpit. Junia in, uh, or Junia in Romans 16, 7 is probably the closest text that can be remotely grasped at to claim a female leader in the New Testament, and that's full of uncertainties. Turn over to Romans 16, 7. It's probably worth looking at because somebody will take you there if you haven't heard it before. You look at Romans 16, 1, and here is clearly a woman that God has used and is using greatly in the church. Verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a, a servant of the church or a deaconess of the, of the church, whether she was set apart as a model servant or, or not. Frankly, it would be irrelevant from Scripture's standpoint as long as she wasn't teaching or, or in a position of authority. Verse 2, that you receive her in the Lord in a, word, in a manner worthy of the saints. And she was highly exalted in the, in the church. And that you may help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. Here's a man and a woman in verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They are partners in the gospel. Great work, great task. But look at verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who were also who also were in Christ before me. So the Greek here can be rendered Junia, a female name most of the time, or Junius, a man's name. So whoever it is, male or female, it says that this person was outstanding among the apostles. And that can mean outstanding among them or as if they were an apostle or esteemed by the apostles. Both are possible. So that's the only passage in the entire New Testament that you can even remotely find that says that there was a woman that had some type of apostolic authority. And if it's your only verse to build a doctrine of female apostles, and it's a single verse, it's unclear, maybe even contradictory, it's probably not very firm ground. Especially when that one verse has to explain away all those other plain passages like 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 12, which are abundantly clear. And finally, gender in Scripture. This is a very, scripture is very consistent. You can see God's order in the family. 
All through the Old and New Testament, God has instructed men to lead the family, to bear that responsibility. For wives to voluntarily arrange themselves as a, as a help. I hope I don't have to say to you on a Sunday night in a mature church that that, that, that implies anything other than godly leadership. I mean, if you want to hear about abuse or, I mean, which is real and men not being good men and women not being good women, you can go listen to the passages where he preached specifically about that in Ecclesiastes. So we're assuming a number of things here. It was taught in Genesis 2 and 3, in Deuteronomy 6, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, Peter. And God doesn't ordain men to lead in the family and then place them under women in the church. How confusing would that be? So does God think that women are just inferior? Inferior leaders? Maybe He doesn't like them. <laughs> and as Paul says, may it never be. The logic is flawed in and of itself. If, in fact, if you think that way, it's evidence that the cultural ideas have begun to leak in. And I think you can just debunk that question by, by asking another one. Who is it that trains up all of the men that end up leading in the church and in the family? Who has the primary responsibility and the primary influence in the early formidable years of someone's life? It's women. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to show you how Paul wraps up this prohibition passage. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Watch Paul's reasoning. He gives this prohibition in verse 11. He defines what he means by it in verse 12. Not in an official teaching capacity or, or ruling in the church. He roots it in verse 13 in, in creation, for it was God's wisdom. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And when that got out of order, it led to the fall. Both Adam and Eve are responsible, but he applies it to Eve here because he's talking about women. And it was not Adam who was first deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into the transgression. doesn't mean that women are more gullible than men. It's just stating a fact. But look at verse 15. But, even though all that happened, here's the, here's the beautiful, merciful plan of God built in. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with, with self-restraint or faith and charity and holiness and sobriety. So after saying that the prohibition against women elders is rooted in the order of creation, he says those same women fulfilling their role faithfully is God's way to undo their part in the fall. I mean, Eve was, was not created first, but she led and was deceived. And for any of her offspring that continue in faith and love and holiness and sobriety, that's women... They can be part of reversing the curse. And the primary place that they do that is through raising godly seed or children. The beauty and the wisdom of God. And now it comes first circle. And the most formative years of a person's life are shaped by godly women. What did Paul say to Timothy? Where did Timothy learn the scriptures? From his mother and his grandmother? You've learned them, and now I'm coming along and I'm building on that foundation. And most of you first heard about Jesus from a woman. You think that there may be a connection for why Satan is downplaying being a mother and being in the home and being in all those other things? It's exactly why there's a connection there. Not only that, but the one who leads is not greater than the one who doesn't. That's the world system of thinking. You remember what Jesus said to the disciples? We referenced it last week in Matthew 20. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and, they, and their men exercise authority over them. It is not that way among you. 
Jesus says, we're not like unbelievers. We're not like the Gentiles. We don't have the same operating system. And we don't do leadership like that. And we don't see leadership like that. Leaders are not greater because of their position, and a servant is inferior. He says it's just the opposite. If you want to be great, be a servant. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, be a slave. And so if you want to take the worldly argument that men are here and women are here, which is not what the Bible says, then Jesus turns that completely upside down and says, if that's the case, then women actually are the ones that are higher and more exalted as servants and, and slaves. But Scripture says they're both equal. They just have a different task. Same with Jesus, who was God, and he submitted to the authority of government, paid taxes, even a wicked one, and he wasn't inferior. And Christ submitted to the Father, and yet he was not one ounce lesser. And when God calls church members to submit to their leaders, they're not inferior to, to elders, and neither are wives to husbands. And the only one who is worthy is God himself, and all authority has been delegated from him. So the, the role of significance is not leadership. In fact, in God's kingdom, it's a blessing to be under authority not in authority. It's a burden. Paul talked about the burden of the churches. And leaders do bear a heavy burden, give a greater account in judgment. That's what James chapter 3 says. Let not many of you desire to be teachers because you will be held to a stricter judgment. And I can promise you that when you stand before the beam of seat of Christ, you'll not wish for one more ounce of authority to paraphrase something Dr. Zimmick said, and you'll be thanking God for the biblical authority that was exercised over you that made you like the sun and less like the world. And Being under elders is not a punishment, it's a place of privilege. And God's people would say, grant us more of them. And we'll round out the rest next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you stand resolute. Your word is so clear, and it's clear in all times. No matter what goes on outside of the walls of the church, the Bible reigns within it and within our hearts and within our homes. And I pray, Lord, that you would protect us from perversions, perversions of what leadership actually looks like, Perversions that would say it's not sacrificial, it's not giving yourself away, even as we saw Paul's example this morning, pouring ourselves out as a drink offering. And, and Lord, keep us in the text because that's where the authority is. And the arguments of the world can be so seductive and deceptive. Protect us from that. And where we get astray, bring us back. We love you. We thank you for the privilege to be in a biblical church. And we ask you to bless. And even tonight, in Jesus' name, amen.